All right, so um, we have some listener questions that we're going to go through. A couple, like, really good questions. I just read them for the first time, so I'm excited. So I'm going to ask you, Leslie, you give your answer, and then I'll give mine, because obviously we're going to have different, maybe similar, but different perspectives. Um, Are you ready? I am so ready. (laughs) Okay, I love our listeners. Um, So what would you suggest if you're not completely sure about your sexuality. Basically they said, I'm not completely um, sure how I feel. I don't really know what my identity is. So I think um, that sort of uh, pathway that you had mentioned, the sort of stages of coming out is a good one to, to sort of pay attention to. Um, the only way to really know what turns you on or, you know, makes you fall in love is, is to sort of try it out. So that's what I would say is, is try and find safe ways of accessing, um, different media, um, you know, like watching movies about featuring gay characters, you know, or, or gay, you know, love stories, um, or whatever orientation, you know, you are questioning. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, if, if, if you're questioning, I'd say you're, you're about 95% there probably. <laughs> Totally. Um, yeah, I second everything Leslie said. I also want to add like, you know, there's really no destination in terms of any of this. You're not, you're not going to get to like a finish line, you know? So give yourself all the time in the world that you need, um, and be in community around other queer folks. That's like the greatest, most liberating, most beautiful, thing you can do is be in community with other queer folks. And if you live somewhere where there's not a lot, come to the West Coast. Um, okay. Second question. Um, how do I figure out, ooh, ooh, this is so good. Oh, Leslie, you're going to die. How do I figure out who is safe and where those safe spaces are? Oh, this is, this is an excellent question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this also, especially with uh, sort of certain legislation changes, this also depends on where you're living. I don't know what state the follower is in. Uh, I'm in California. Um, How do you, this is, I mean, especially for me as, as somebody um, who's diagnosed with borderline, um, that was something that I really struggled with uh, when I was younger was, um, you know, I, I think I just sort of took like a shotgun approach and, you know, whoever paid the most attention to me, um, I got sort of, you know, my, my intimacy and and that's definitely not the way you want to go about that. Um, (laughs) No, um, I think that, um, you know, most of us have a pretty good radar for when somebody is 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 deeply listening to us. So if there's anybody where, you know, if you're talking to them and you you really get that sense of, you know, no, this person is is listening to me, not to just respond, but they're they're actually taking in what I'm saying to them. Um sometimes our intuitions can lead us astray, but you know, um also trust yourself uh that you know, the people who who you get that sort of gut safe feeling with, you know, those are people to maybe lean into more. Um, 
I, you know, I, I, this is, I'm so not the person to answer this question. This is so hard because I was routinely failed by the institutional resources that were at my disposal. I mean, I didn't get my ADHD diagnosis until I was 28. I didn't get the borderline diagnosis until I was 25, 26. Um, you know, uh, but, um, I don't know, Sarah, you want to take it away? (laughs) Yeah, I have so many thoughts. Like, I feel like this question in itself could be like an entire episode that um, I'm going to write down actually, because I think that um, specifically the intersection of um, sexuality and borderline is so complex because of um, unstable sense of self that we try to use other people to regulate and give us a, a sense of self and the, the impulsivity. I know that other people experience um, degrees of impulsivity differently. I think you and I, Leslie, are probably like on the same wavelength. Like we can't, we should not ever go to the bar together. You know what I mean? That is just a recipe for a disaster. Trouble. Trouble. Because I think that you and I are maxed out where impulsivity is concerned. Y'all, I don't know how many sex, how many people I've had sex with. Like I it's I love it's near a hundred, maybe over a hundred. I don't know. Um, if I want to be a senator someday, I can't because my nudes are gonna get leaked from my exact thought process. That's hilarious. <laughs> every which way direction from Sunday. You know what I mean? I've just learned to not put my face in them now, but like I have tattoos that are so distinct. So I am I think that we need to really explore more about how to determine what is safe as a BPD community and maybe talk about it. But for the purposes of this question. Um, you know, everyone is going to have a different definition of what safety looks like for you culturally, based on your trauma history, based on where you live, um, based on what you are comfortable with and not comfortable with. So I would first start with just you kind of defining for yourself what safety looks like for you. Um, and then if you're trying to like add other people into the mix, um, uh, specifically like dating and kind of sexually. Um, I'm a big fan and proponent of, um, sexting. Um, like that is a way for me to determine if you are a person who can respect my boundaries, you know, like these days you need to ask consent to send me a photo. Like you need to say, are you up for seeing a photo of my body? Like if a person is doing that, I'm like, okay, there's some emotional intelligence here. There are certain conventions that if people follow them in sort of the smaller like conversations and smaller interactions that, you know, that when it comes to the bigger ones, they're going to be respectful as well. I agree. Yeah. And I think this is actually where straight men Um, probably straight white men have a lot to learn from queer and ethical non-monogamous folks is that the dialogue around consent is wildly different in the queer community versus with straight men. I've had sex with a lot of straight men, y'all. Some scenarios were not consensual, which that's not sex. Um, And then I've had sex with a lot of men where it the degree to which I give consent for specific acts is very um, gray because they think that they're allowed to just do things, right? Um, 
And so the, the dialogue around consent is just very different in the queer community. I have people say, I have had people say, just so you know, I have the intention of like being with your body tonight. Do you also have that intention? You know, like hours before there was ever that's so sexy. Her lips on my lips. That's so hot. (laughs) And then there was also like, these are the areas of my body that are okay to touch, and this is how it's okay for you to touch them, and this is what's not okay for you to touch, and this is how it's not okay for you to touch them. Very specific. So normalize that kind of dialogue. Um and see if when you try to engage that kind of dialogue with people, how they respond, because that will tell you a lot about safety, I think. And doing that via text is a way to sort of mitigate some of the danger that you would have to go through to sort of feel that out in person. That is one definite benefit for sure. Which is a big part of why I like sexting, but then also like um, I found that sexting is a way for me to kind of like mitigate my impulsivity I'm like, okay, I don't need to go fuck you now and like put myself at risk because like I already got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm already in bed. (laughs) I got the oxytocin and the serotonin I needed from this. Like, good night, dude. Good day to you, sir. (laughs) Thank you, sir, for your time and your contribution to my wellness. Um, Okay, anyways. um, Question, next question, Leslie. What, oh, my sweetheart, what would be the one thing you would tell yourself, your younger self about coming out? I am like, um, I'm like a, not a hypochondriac, but I'm definitely like a worst case scenario type of person. I have pretty severe anxiety. And so I fell prey to a lot of the more harmful cultural narratives about how being gay automatically means you're a sexual predator. And so especially because I was a young, like very young, like child or young, young person being attracted to other young female children, um, rather than like literally like that's how sort of indoctrinated into heteronormativity I was that rather than assume that like, oh, this just means I'm queer. I was like, no, no, no. This means I'm going to grow up to be like a pedophile or a predator or something. Um, So that one was probably one of the most harmful, detrimental sort of roadblocks to me embracing my queerness and and really living like in like my fullness. Um, So I would I would tell my younger self, um, you know, yeah, just just that just because something is different about you doesn't mean that you're the problem. It just means that this is something about you that you know now and you can, you know, you can determine what that means for yourself. You know, you can observe this in yourself and let it grow and, you know, you can sort of control how that develops. And that's kind of outside of like the scope of like a child necessarily, but, you know, to a degree, you know, I just wish that I had had that sort of foresight for sure. Definitely. I love that. Um Again, my response to this is going to be very convoluted because when people talk about coming out who aren't queer, they don't realize that you come out a million times across the lifespan. Every time you have a new employer, a new friend, a new um, fucking any sort of new scenario in your life, you end up coming out. So when people talk about coming out, generally they're talking about the first time that you come out. That's kind of that like normal thing. So If I was telling my younger self about when I was pulled out, um, I wish I could tell myself then to 
um, allow myself to grieve that I didn't get to come out in the way that I wanted, but also to have compassion for the person who was um, responsible for kind of pulling me out because they were doing it um, to keep me safe. And I would also tell myself that the person that um, I loved um, who had a position of power over me, that um, just because someone has a position of power over you and they want to love you doesn't mean that you're worthy. You know, like I really believed that I was worthy perhaps for the first time in my life because that person wanted to love me and who knows if they really wanted to love me or just have control over me. But, um, my coming out story really, you know, what I would say to myself really has nothing to do to like coming out necessarily as queer as it does power dynamics. Um, and I think it's really important how we talk about power to young people. I didn't understand what grooming was when I was younger. So I didn't know I was being groomed. I was just fucking excited to have this really hot lady want me. I didn't know it was inappropriate. So, um, but what, what I would also tell myself is that, um, I get to come out, you know, so many more times in my life. And so it gets to be empowering at some point. Um, It will be empowering. And then eventually it won't be empowering because it's just fucking normal. You know, totally. Yeah. It's a wave. There's sort of like a a journey that you go through with that as well. Yeah. Um, Okay. How old were you when you came out? Let's do a two-parter. How old do you think you are when you came out to yourself? And how old do you think you are when you came out, came out? How old were you? Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, like I, I acknowledge that I had like queer urges and feelings from a pretty young age, but I, um, the nature of my trauma, I dissociate a lot. And so I had a lot of sort of like flashbulb repressed memories that I recovered after therapy later on in my life. Um, and and so because of that dissociation, like my memory of my my childhood and my youth is very scattered. It's very, you know, like my mom will often be like, hey, Les, you know, do you remember that? And I'll be like, no, no. Like, actually, my coming out story, that is one of those examples where she was like, yeah, you called me and it sounded like you were at this party in college. And I've literally repressed it until this point in the conversation. My brain is like powerful. Um <laughs> And you were, you sounded like you were at this party and you were just like, mom, like, I'm like, gay, like I'm queer. Like I have a like dear, like a different, you know, alternative sexuality, you know? And I'm like, mom, I, that didn't happen. Like you stop it. I would never, that doesn't sound like me. I would never do that. Um, I've also considered, um, possibly like, uh, um, Sorry, uh, it's so hard to talk about dissociation because your brain will literally dissociate in the middle of talking about dissociation. Sorry, guys. Um, so, so yeah. So, um, so that when she told me about that, I think I was around like seventeen or so when that happened. But I think that I probably like 
begrudgingly admitted like that maybe I had like a fetish or that I was, I also got into kink at a fairly young age. So I figured maybe it was like a part of that, you know, that I was just this really sort of deviant kinky person again, anything but queer. (laughs) Um, so I probably, I probably reached that point when I was like, maybe like 13 or so, you know, sounds about right. Yeah. And I, um, started, I started dating, um, my first woman when I was 17 and, um, but I was like, not ready at the time to like hold hands in public or any of those things. And then I, my first election when I was 18 that I voted in was, um, Obama's second election and our local, um, uh, voting was on passing of gay marriage. So I got to vote to pass gay marriage in Washington long before federally it became illegal um, when I was 18. And so around that time I was starting to kind of publicly present, but um, it was all very, very, very messy because of the person that I was in a relationship with in my community. It needed to be not widely discussed. Um, but I will say I, y'all, I, can we just acknowledge the fucking shame around that? I I don't even feel like I'm allowed to talk about this and like, I'm 28 years old. That is the insidious nature of abuse is that it can take literally any life sort of milestone and really turn it into this very complicated, very difficult thing. And, you know, it's a big part of reclaiming things, but, you know, it it never fully goes away. You know, it's always a problem. It's really, really hard for me to admit. I also feel like I have to protect my family from the shame that I dated this person when I was 17 and they were 23 and I was in high school and a player and they were my coach. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, the hardest part living with my mom and watching her sort of cope with um, me acknowledging the extent of my trauma and abuse is that she has to acknowledge, you know, I mean, she doesn't have to, but like bless her heart, she's in therapy. So she does acknowledge the extent of that. And it's very hard for them to, to sort of use, you can see it on their face. Like, Oh my, I failed this little kid who was in my charge, you know, and that's not easy for anybody to live with if they're a halfway decent human being. Yeah. And I don't feel, um, that because I was 17. So my parents, you know, like it wasn't my parents. I know, I know, but like, but I wasn't, my parents weren't hanging around me all the time. Right. Like I made a very conscious choice to pursue the relationship with my coach when I was being groomed by my coach, but I digress. My my shame is really because I don't want people to think bad about my family because I was in a relationship with that person. So, um, yeah. wow. We just, welcome to therapy. Welcome <laughs> to therapy. That part might need to just be extended for Patreon. I don't I know what I'm going to do with that. To, uh, you know, I have, I have that effect on people sometimes. <laughs> Thank you, Leslie. Um, <laughs> But I will say that when I started to like really admit to myself, um, when I was a freshman, one of my teammates was masculine and we were texting a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot for several, several months. And then when I was a sophomore, there was another teammate who was like more masculine and we were texting a lot. And 
but none of those things I pursued. And then when I was 17, so final question, can you talk about your queerness specifically related to experiencing borderline personality disorder? Yes. Um, so not everybody who, you know, is diagnosed or, or self-diagnosed as borderline has a history of childhood trauma as most folks sort of understand it. So I had um, a pretty typical course of abuse and neglect when I was younger. Um, and so I've touched on how that I definitely think influenced, if not like the sort of genesis of my sexuality, very much so the way that I interacted with it and interpreted it over the course of my growth and development. Um, I think that I, I talked about sort of developing that hypersexual response, um, and we touched on, um, you know, how that there's like that professional stigma does sort of exist because I think so many young women who experience, you know, developmental trauma end up developing that hypersexuality, you know, there's also hyposexuality that gets developed as a response as well. But um, that profile, the, that particularly intense impulsivity is um, really, really difficult. Um, and so I think that if I had slowed down a little bit in my younger years to recognize that like, okay, I'm going to people to self-soothe, um, you know, um, because I'm struggling with these these symptoms of, of borderline, um, that I would have been able to see like the overall pattern. I, I feel like I, I was so disorganized when I, when I was younger and, you know, we have that sort of lack of identity that it didn't, again, it didn't even occur to me that like that could be a part of, of how I saw myself and who I was. And um, so I think that that might be one reason why I didn't come out until a bit later on and that I didn't really discover my bisexuality until a little bit later on. Although, again, we've talked about how, you know, like, there's usually signs. <laughs> so, um, so I, I just, I do think that, you know, the way that I responded to my trauma definitely informed, like even being able to have a relationship with my, my queerness. Yeah. I, um, I don't think I expected this conversation was going to turn so trauma specific. Every but... conversation with me turns to trauma. Sorry. No, please do not ever apologize. But I think that um, that's where the intersection with this question is like very important because um, you're not going to meet a person with borderline personality disorder that hasn't had at least one, if not multiple or chronically persistent traumas. Most, um, most women in the world are, have experienced some sort of harassment or, um, uh, sexual trauma. Um, I am, you know, not immune from that, like most people. So, you know, the kind of like intersection of trauma and queerness and borderline is very confusing because I was queer long before I was raped. Like, like we were just talking about, right? Like second grade, I didn't experience my first sexual assault until I was 16. So I was queer long before that happened. Um, but I will say that, and those traumas 
often result in us developing these symptoms that present as borderline, right? We know that that's in the research, but emotionally, I feel much safer with women than I do with men. Sexually, I feel more attracted to men than I do with women, but don't get it twisted. I am very attracted to a specific female body. I tell all my friends, my friends get kind of like, um, offended by me sometimes because I'm like, listen, like if she doesn't wear Calvin Klein boxer briefs, I don't want her. If you wear lacy underwear and mascara, don't let's get a manicure. Like let's hike some mountains. But if you've got the like silky black cotton blend, um, you know, like not knee length, not higher, like that middle leg boxer brief and a sports bra and skinny jeans and a flannel and a beanie. I want to rock your world. You know, like it's a very specific, very Pacific Northwest queer look. So, um, but the intersection of the trauma that, you know, influences the borderline and the queerness does make me feel emotionally much safer and physically much safer around women. And so I think that I have gravitated towards having more relationships with women in my adult life than I have men because of that. Um, that doesn't mean I'm more gay than I am straight. It doesn't mean I'm more straight than I am gay. It just means that it is a part of the conversation. And it's, it's, I bring this up because one of the things that I heard when I was younger from people in my life was you're only gay or queer because you were raped. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Uh, Can we take a second to appreciate how absolutely fucked up that is? Yeah. But I think a lot of people have heard that, you know, like you're, you're going towards a person who makes you feel safer because the person in the other body made you feel unsafe. And it's like, that's not true. It's just a piece of the conversation. And so I think it's important that we can kind of like differentiate between those things and see them see the gray in them, the dialectics, if you will, right? The like the trauma and the borderline and the queerness are related in some way, but they are not, there's not causality. They inform each other, agreed. Yeah. They inform each other. Um, but what else specifically related to borderline? I think like um for me, my sexuality, whether it's like, you know we're, we're talking about like queer sex or not is very informed by my impulsivity and my need to regulate my emotions. And if I am looking to validate and regulate my emotions that way, and I'm having a hard time self-soothing, I always go towards women because listen, men fucking suck at this. Said it. Sorry. Yeah, no. Uh, one of uh, the most important lessons that I learned before I realized that I was polyamorous or non-monogamous was um, like, and I, this one maybe did come from when I, you know, when I was 16 or 17 years old doing couples counseling with my first, you know, major relationship with a boyfriend, my high school sweetheart. Um, we were together for like six years. Um, and then, yeah, I had like classic borderline kind of, I had like this very sort of this identity up until that breakup. And then a lot of things that I hadn't really been acknowledging about myself because I hadn't been able to explore them within that relationship, you know, came out. But, um, 
Oh no, I lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. No. Um, we were talking about, um, I think the intersection of ENM was starting to come yes. up. Yes, 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 that's right. Um, there are some needs that uh, you, they're just not appropriate needs to ask a certain people to fill. They're just, that's not the person that you're going to be able to go to. And like, what do you do? Because I've heard a lot of straight women say, I wish that being gay was a choice. I would never choose to be straight in a million years. You know, like what happens when like you're going to the people that are most widely available to you to meet those needs, you know, ostensibly, and they routinely cannot meet those needs. I mean, for me, it's, not just a numbers game, but like, I've just gotten progressively more interested in having queer relationships, the older I've gotten. Um, and I think in part that's because I just have routinely not had the, the emotional needs met that I need to maintain like a long-term romantic relationship with somebody with straight sort of cishet men. Um, even the, the bisexual or queer men that I, I date or see, um, are, you know, and, and like, I feel bad sometimes qualifying like no cishet men, but then I think about it and I'm like, no, Leslie, you don't have those issues with any other kinds of relationships with other kinds of people, you know? Um, so yeah, sorry, it's, I got a little, they're socialized in a very specific way. They are socialized in a very specific way to repress their emotions and to talk about it in a masculine aggressive kind of way that is very off-putting as a woman who's been socialized differently. Um, the other, the, the way you were talking about this, how you gravitated towards more queer relationships as, as you've gotten older reminds me specifically related to my BPD. I think the further into recovery with borderline, um, traits, symptoms, whatever, um, that I get, the more I gravitate towards relationships with men actually. And that is because I don't care if I get canceled from this, I'm going to get canceled from this. Sarah, prepare yourself. You're going to get canceled. It's okay. Life will go on. Um, the, 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 in your twenties relationship with women is toxic in many ways. I said it. I said it, dating women, dating another woman as a woman can easily become toxic because it's very overwhelming. And unless both people are working very hard to regulate their emotions and they have skills for managing, it's easy to become codependent. It's easy to use one another to regulate and to not learn your self-regulation skills. And I will say that um, the vast majority of women that I have dated in my life have not had very good skills. I want to go back though. Don't cancel me forever. Y'all. I think like, again, these are like late teens, early twenties to mid twenties relationships with women. So there's developmental perspectives and all of these things going on, but I've experienced dating women can be kind of toxic. I totally agree. And honestly, one of the things that I think really drives that is the fact that like, regardless of um, whether or not you're queer or straight <clears throat> or, or, or trans or whatnot, like everybody sees the way that everybody else is socialized. Like you are socialized based on the way people treat you based on the way they perceive you. Right. But you see the way all the other groups and types of people are socialized as well. 
And I think that like when you have two people who were socialized in the similar way, I'm almost like thinking of genetics a little bit. It's like you have the same strengths and the same deficits. And so everything gets really magnified and like, you know, compounded. And so like you're both really good at the things you're really good at, but you also both have these pretty gnarly blind spots often in the same places. And it's really easy to try, especially if you see somebody who is similar to you and good at sort of some of the same things as you to try and use each other to, to fill that hole. I, I totally back you up on that. (laughs) Yeah. Especially being a person with big feelings that needs to regulate often. Um, and I will say too, like living in like, it is, I don't, if people have not seen like the original L word, please go watch because, um, there is like one of the opening, maybe the first episode or second episode, Alice builds this chart where she's like, I will figure out for every single one of my friends, how many people it would take them to get connected to me through sex. So, so so-and-so had sex with so-and-so who had sex with so-and-so who had sex with so-and-so who I had sex with. I'm five people away from you is how it goes. It's very classic lesbian, but listen, there's classic lesbian stereotypes for a reason. We can assume that like, you know, 20% of people maybe identifies as gay or queer. Okay. Like let's, the research says maybe 20% or something like that. I mean, it's probably higher, but people have internalized homophobia that prevents them from coming out. But if we assume that like 20% of folks are kind of queer, um, you're taking the Portland Metro and making it 80 times smaller. Now let's split that in half because I'm generally, you know, like only talking about queer women because I'm not having sex with gay men. So that's 10% of the population. Now hit that with the fact that I'm only fucking girls that wear Calvin Klein boxer briefs. That's like, that's like 1% of Portland. So Everyone I know in queer community knows one another. It doesn't take very long for me to figure out that my height, you know, like my second gay relationship when I was like 19, her childhood best friend dated my now ex-wife in their teen years. And then my ex-wife's ex-best friend's ex-wife And I are now friends. Like, we all know each other. And so we know each other's experiences and shit does get toxic really quickly. And when you have strong emotions and it's a small community and everybody knows each other's past, shit blows up. Sorry, said it. Toxic sometimes. Yeah, no, agreed. Or you then, there's the other side of the spectrum, which happened to me and my best friend is like, we're both bisexual, but we, and we adore each other. We really love each other, you know, but we kind of both mutually decided, and she's also on the eighth spectrum. She's kind of gray sexual. Um, but we both mutually decided like, no, having queer community that is stable in the form of a friendship is more important Way to us right now than having like a romantic dalliance sort of that may or may not really work out, you know? And it's, I mean, it's been like five years later now. Um, so 
sometimes that will happen where I, you know, you just, you describe your type and I'm like, I have one friend in particular, she's not single right now. Otherwise I would totally hook it up, but I know, I know, I know, but just to a T, um, (laughs) but that, that does happen sometimes, you know, where, uh, it's sort of like, there's, we are, we are so starved for community sometimes, you know, um, that, uh, uh, you either, um, get into this very insular sort of toxic, uh, you know, sort of situation, or you're like, I don't even want to touch that because like, I have so few queer friends as it is. Um, it's, it's hard to navigate definitely. And then throw in the super big emotions, the, um, sort of, I have ADHD as well. So I have a big struggle with like social interactions sometimes and like executive function and stuff like that. Um, it just, it becomes, um, yeah, it becomes like, kind of a quagmire. It just, it becomes hard to navigate. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's where the borderline throws the queerness off. It does. It becomes very hard to navigate. I have two exes that ended up playing on the same fucking softball team together. Like dude, fucking hit me with the gay shit. I can't go to a fucking gay. I can't go. I can't go to CC slaughters without seeing somebody, you know? And like, anyways, So that is the end of our rapid fire questions. Speaking of ADHD, both Leslie and I have it. It's very obvious. (laughs) Lori, if you were listening, um, you probably didn't even make it to the end because there were so many tangents, but um, this is what happens when I'm in charge of things. She was like, oh, maybe I'll be able to make it. Maybe my flight will get in in time. Can you send me the calendar invite, Sarah? And I was like, bitch, what calendar invite? I'm not making a calendar invite. Like, I'm not doing that. So like, that's your job, Lori. So, and then let's record a third episode on the ENM queer stuff. I'm so super down. I can't wait. Oh my God. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So um, what is your final takeaway? What is the last thing you want people to know about, about queerness, about pride, about queerness and BPD? You get the last word. Let's see here. I'm going to try and sound as like, you know, smart and succinct and profound as possible. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, the last episode that I did with you guys, I, I ended it by sort of saying, you know, just because you have this diagnosis or you identify with this diagnosis of borderline, um, doesn't mean that there's, you know, there doesn't mean that there are certain things in this world that you can't have or you can't do, you know, and, and it just means that, you know, you may need to find sort of the way to do it that works for you. Um, and so, you know, just not being afraid to, to lean into what does my queerness mean for me? What does my borderline mean for me? How do, do those things touch on each other? Um, you know, sort of, uh, I think that a lot of folks, uh, at least, uh, my age that I know and, and see, um, there's a big trend of, of really leaning into your sort of intuition and sort of feeling out, you know, deciding like what, what are, what's the life that we want to lead? How do, you know, we see ourselves in, in, you know, a happy future, um, (laughs) which is difficult sometimes. (laughs) Um, so I would just encourage folks not to get too bogged down in, I'm queer and I live in this culture or this family that, that will never sort of accept me or I'm borderline. And I have these doctors that maybe, you know, are not getting it, or I have a family that's not, you know, like 
you may be in an environment where it's really difficult to reconcile all these different things within yourself, um, but you you can imagine a future where that all makes sense and you can make that future for yourself. That's so beautiful. I love that for all of our listeners, but especially our young queer listeners. Those are my people. Yeah. Leslie, I love you. I'm obsessed with you. We're going to be recording again. Um, But thank you so much for this one. And I can't wait for people to hear the next one. Love you too, boo. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey. And we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline, and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes. So check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. 